second reading, which is, in fact, from Romans chapter 13. I will read verses 8 through 14. Hear the word of God. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. To gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you would be present with us here this morning. Uh, As we look into your word, we pray that you would teach us uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So repeat after me, antinomian. Excellent, excellent. Now let's try that in a sentence. I am not an antinomian. Ah, it is music to my ears. To refresh your memory, Merriam-Webster defines the noun antinomian this way. One who holds that under the gospel dispensation of grace, the moral law is of no use or no obligation. Because faith alone is necessary for salvation. Nomos is the Greek word for law, and so antinomian is anti-law. The first time this word appeared in the English language was in 1565. It was used to name a certain error that had emerged amongst Reformed Christians, among people like ourselves. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that good works and following God's moral law are required if you plan to make it to heaven. According to Catholic doctrine, God's grace, which is received by faith, enables us to live good and moral lives, lives conforming to God's moral law so that we will merit the blessings of heaven. In the Reformed Church, however, emerging from the Catholic Church during the Protestant Reformation, There was a tremendous emphasis on the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. This doctrine is rooted in the letters of St. Paul. It's rooted in the work of St. Augustine. And it insists that good works are not needed for salvation. It insists that no one is saved by obeying God's moral law. Reformed Christians say that we are saved not because of anything that we've done to merit or to earn salvation, but rather we are saved simply because of the grace of God, a free gift which we receive in faith. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, 
It is the gift of God and not the result of works, so that no one may boast. We all understand that God's moral law tells us what kinds of actions and attitudes are good and just and righteous and what kinds of actions and attitudes are evil and unjust and unrighteous. God's moral law shows us the difference between right and wrong. Now it's true that we can sometimes know right and wrong simply by the light of nature simply by natural human reason alone, but not always. Because human reason, like every other part of our body and our soul and our mind, human reason has been corrupted by the fall. And so Scripture tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to God and He will make your path straight. God's moral law is very helpful in clarifying right and wrong. Self-interest and self-deception often have us choosing the wrong over the right, even while we convince ourselves that what we're doing is okay. When we sin, we're really good at making up 999 reasons why this sin is okay in this particular case, why it's not really cheating or why no one will know anyway and why it's only just a little lie and why I'm just getting from myself what I deserve in the first place. We're really good at making up reasons why our sin is not sin. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Because we are fallen creatures, we have this tremendous capacity for self-deception. And so God's moral law is very helpful because it can check us. It can check our thinking. It can check our attitudes. In the book of Amos, the prophet uses the image of a plumb line as a metaphor for God's moral law. Those of you who have done carpentry know that a plumb line is a heavy weight dangling from a string. The weight pulls the string tight, and the string forms a perfectly vertical line, which you can use to check to see if your wall or your window or your door is straight up and down. Without the plumb line, you can't really tell just by looking. But the plumb line makes it instantly clear if your door is leaning a little to the left or a little to the right. That's what the moral law does with our human actions and our human attitudes. It is a plumb line that we can use to check to see if our attitudes are good or bad. Our call to worship this morning came from Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. A psalm entirely devoted to singing the praises of the law of God. In a world where it can be hard to tell which way is up and which way is down, God's law provides this reliable standard. David writes, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. God's law is a wonderful thing. It's a plumb line to check ourselves against. It is a light to our path, as it says in another psalm. God's law gives us peace because when we follow it, we know that we don't have to look over our shoulders. Because when we trust it, we don't stumble. Thanks be to God for his moral law. But 
If we're saved by grace, maybe we don't need that law at all. Or so say the antinomians. Our passage this morning from Romans 13 says two things that might suggest we can pitch the law right out the window. Verse 8 says, those who love another, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And verse 10 says, love is fulfilling the law. In recent decades, in the Western world at least, there has been a revolution in sexual ethics, things that once one dared not even think of, much less speak out loud, have been at first tolerated and then accepted and then celebrated. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on this passage in Romans, says, The greatest revolution in American history is neither the, the American Revolution nor the Industrial Revolution. It is the sexual revolution. This has become the most far-reaching, most damaging revolution in this country or in any other. Of course, it is never the job of a Christian to judge what is happening in the secular or pagan world. Let the world do as the world wants to do, for the scripture tells us that world is passing away anyway. As Christians, it is never our job to judge what is happening in the secular pagan world, but we should be very careful when we see secular and pagan ideas enter the church. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5.12, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? But you are, but are you not to judge those inside? In this case, Paul was talking about uh, incest that was going on in the Corinthian church, a, a case that was open and known and tolerated within the church. And Paul calls the Corinthian church onto the carpet for entirely caving and conforming to the sexual mores of the secular pagan world surrounding the church for tolerating this man who was part of the church and for not taking concrete steps against him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that this man should be put out of the church. Paul says that this man should be handed over to Satan because of this grievous violation of the moral law. Now, how much do you want to bet? And I'm willing to bet my boots How much do you want to bet that the perpetrator in Corinth was saying something like, this is someone who's involved in incest, but I love her. Isn't love the fulfillment of the law? Or we love each other. And the Bible says the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Sexual antinomianism, sexual lawlessness has infected large swaths of the church in Western industrialized nations. This is a European and an American problem. It is not a problem of global Christianity. And love has been the Trojan horse by which the church has been infected, which makes sense because love is the highest value in Christian ethics. Because of all the Christian virtues, the Bible tells us the greatest of these is love because the Bible tells us God is love. If you were Satan seeking to devour and destroy Christians, if you were Satan gathered with your myrmidons to plot the destruction of the church, what better plan could you come up with 
than to undermine God's law, the law which keeps us safe, the law which gives us the plumb line to check our thinking, the law which preserves our peace with God and fellow man. What better plan could you come up with than to undermine God's law by an appeal to love? Because love is our highest value. Because love is the fulfillment of the law. It's a very clever strategy. It's a perfect Trojan horse. Fortunately, it's not a strategy that works if you can read your Bible in Greek. Let me explain. Our English word love covers a lot of territory that the word Paul uses in Romans 13 does not cover. There are four common words in Greek that are all translated as love in English. I'm going to talk about them in a minute, and you've got your little your little uh, pink slip there. I want to go through that with you. But let me just say up front that when Paul writes, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, or when Paul says love is fulfilling the law, Paul is in no way, shape, or form talking about sexual love. Not at all. Not even a little bit. Now for us these days, in English, love and sexual desire are intimately linked. We talk about making love. Some of you are old enough to remember when that phrase meant romancing or pitching woo. And some of us are young enough to think that making love means having sex with. And some of you are so young that the phrase is no longer part of your lexicon. It's an old fogey language that's been replaced with hooking up. We also talk about being in love. We talk about falling in love. We talk about love at first sight. All of these phrases, making love, being in love, falling in love, love at first sight, are English translations of the Greek word eros. Now eros is a very common word in ancient Greek. Eros is the love of desire. In eros, the lover looks at someone or something... And sees the virtues of what he's looking at. It's beauty, it's desirability, it's perfections. Eros begins with the eyes, which is why we have love at first sight. And then Eros moves on to desire, and desire pushes on toward possession. Eros sees the object, desires the object, and then strives to possess the object. What's the plot of every romantic comedy? They're all the same. Boy meets girl. Boy loses girl. Boy gets girl back again. That's eros. That's the love that makes the world go round. That And that really is, in the 21st century, our primary understanding of this word love. Now, the word love appears in the New Testament hundreds of times. Anyone want to guess What percentage of those times are this Greek word eros? Love shows up hundreds of times in the New Testament. How many of those do you imagine are the love of falling in love or being in love or love at first sight or making love? Zero. Not even one. And so when someone says something like, but I love her, isn't love the fulfillment of the law? Or we love each other, and the Bible says that the one who loves has fulfilled the law. 
When anyone uses language like that to argue for some kind of sexual antinomianism, they are at best confused about the meaning of their words, or at worst they are cynical, deceptive, and liars of the first order. And let me break this down so it's crystal clear. When I say, but I love her, or but we love one another, the Greek word for this love is eros. But when the Bible says that love is the fulfillment of the law, or the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, the Greek word for that love is not eros. It's a totally different and unrelated word, and the word is agape. And I'm sure you're all familiar with this word agape. And so the fight within the church over revising our sexual ethics has almost entirely been driven by a transparent bait and switch. It looks plausible in English, but we love each other. And love is the fulfillment of the law. But it fools no one in Greek. But we eros one another, and agape is the fulfillment of the law. There are four kinds of loves. In the Greek lexicon, I've mentioned two, eros and agape. The others are phylos and storge. What all of these have in common is that they are kinds of affection, kinds of feeling. Within the Greek lexicon, these four words are distinguished along two axes. First, whether or not the love is based on the merit of the beloved. And second, whether or not the lover desires to possess the beloved. If you take a look at this now with me, I'm going to go through these very, very quickly. In the lower right-hand corner, we have eros. Eros is romantic or erotic love. First, eros is based upon the virtues of the beloved. The beloved is beautiful, or the beloved is kind, or the beloved has some other virtue that we admire. Eros loves the beloved because the beloved is lovable. And second, eros is based on the desire to possess the beloved. Erotic love always is about possession. It's always about having and holding. That word eros does not ever appear in the New Testament. On the lower left-hand corner, we have storge. Storge is the love that we have for our family or our tribe or our nation. First, Storge is not based on the virtue of the beloved. Don't tell anybody, but I love my kids whether or not they're beautiful. I love my country whether or not it's right. And second, storge is based on the desire to possess. I want to keep my kids and I want to keep my country. This word storge also does not appear in the New Testament. In the upper right-hand corner, we have phylos. Phylos is friendship. First, phylos is based upon the virtues of the beloved. We admire our friends. We value their good points. But second, phylos is not based on a desire to possess. Friends love each other, but friends leave each other to go home. Friendship is not possessive. This word does appear often in the New Testament. Friendship is a very high Christian ideal. And in the upper left-hand corner, we finally have agape. Agape is Christian love. It is self-giving love. Agape is the kind of love that God has for God's people. First, agape is not based on the virtue of the beloved. God does not love us because we're beautiful or good. 
And second, agape is not based on possession. If I have Christian love toward a brother or sister in Christ, I'm not expecting anything in return. This love is all about giving and not about getting. This is the most common word for love in the New Testament. Christian love is a self-giving love which expects nothing in return. Love which is not about me or what I'm getting. This is the word that Paul uses when he says that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Or love is the fulfilling of the law. What Paul is saying is that this kind of love can be a shorthand guide for doing what is right. If I serve and attend the needs of another person, which is what agape demands, then I will be fulfilling God's moral law. If I protect and nurture another person, which is what agape demands, then I will be fulfilling God's moral law. Paul, of course, is just repeating what Jesus said when he uh, said uh, uh, regarding the Ten Commandments, when he said that they were just summed up in the, the one commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. If I love my neighbor... I will not steal. If I love my neighbor, I will not commit adultery. Love, agape, love, is not the abrogation of the moral law. Agape is the completion or the fulfillment of the moral law. Now, if you're not convinced by my argument thus far, if you still think that Paul's statement that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law means that we don't have to be constrained by old-fashioned sexual ethics or outdated moral laws, then meditate for a moment on what Paul says just a few sentences later in verse 13. He writes, Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and in jealousy. Eros, the kind of love that has come to rule and dominate our society, is a self-serving love. It is the love of infinite appetites and the bottomless desire to possess. Eros, romantic love, sexual love, is the kind of love that gazes on the beauty and the desirability of the beloved and then wants to possess for itself, for its own pleasure and satisfaction, the beloved. This kind of love appears nowhere in the New Testament, not even once. Instead, what we see in the New Testament is a higher kind of love, a love of self-giving and self sacrifice. Jesus is our model of this kind of love. Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And it is in that kind of self-giving, self-sacrificing love that we in fact find the fulfillment of God's law. Paul tells us, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we pray this day that by the power of your Holy Spirit, your words would find their place in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would 
hear your voice rather than hearing the voice of all of the clamoring voices of our time. Lord, I pray as well that um, as we hold our lives up against the plumb line of your law that we might be instructed by it, that we might be able to take a critical look at our own attitudes and our own actions and find out whether or not they measure up. Lord, you have sought us out and you have redeemed us, not because of what we do for you, but because of what you wanted to do for us. And I pray that you would teach us to, as your captured children, to live into that kind of love in our own lives as we carry the good news of the gospel to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.